Let's pray again. Our Lord and our God, as we consider these beautiful truths that, that our Lord taught at the end of his public ministry, we, we pray, Father, that you would, by your Spirit, shine your light into our hearts. Lord, that we would know that, that one day we will stand before you to give an account. And Lord, that we would know that, that apart from faith in Christ Jesus, that we would have no hope. But Lord, even as there are many who reject you, and there are even those in this room who are walking in rebellion and rejection of you, help them to see that they stand condemned. but help them in the power of your Holy Spirit to turn from their sin in the heart of repentance and faith in Christ that they might find life in him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There have been quite a few famous farewell addresses throughout history. Martin Luther King's I've Been to the Mountaintop speech in Memphis was given one day before his assassination. Abraham Lincoln's last address two days after the surrender of the Confederate Army and and four days before he was assassinated. Winston Churchill's Never Despair farewell address to the British House of Commons at the onset of, of the threat of nuclear war with the Soviets. All of these speeches were famous in their time, but they have all faded into history. But the truths of this final public address will be declared throughout all eternity. These few verses mark the end of Jesus' public ministry, and in just a few days, he is going to be murdered by the Romans and their Jewish co-conspirators. It's soon after the jubilation of the the triumphal entry where people flocked to pay homage to Jesus and now they are flocking away from him. The next time these people will see Jesus, he's going to be hanging on a cross outside the city. In this passage, Jesus revisits some key themes from his teaching. D.A. Carson sheds light on the fact that Jesus emphasizes that God himself stands behind the Son, whether as the object of faith or as the condemning judge, and that this encourages the most serious consideration of the claims of Christ that have been advanced to this point and injects urgency into the evangelist's reflections on unbelief. Even so, as, as many are rejecting Jesus, his mission is not a failure. He's got the whole world in his hands. And this morning, I'd like us to see these these truths that Jesus was proclaiming, these truths that he had really proclaimed throughout his his public ministry, and here he's reminding these crowds of these final things before he he turns to, to focus on the disciples and in the events leading up to his crucifixion. So first of all, in verses 44 and 45, he's declaring, I am the Son of God. 
And then in verse 46, he's declaring, I am the light. And then in verse 47, he's declaring, I am the Savior. And then in verses 48 to 50, he's declaring, I am the Word. So first of all, in verses 44 and 45, Jesus is declaring, I am the Son of God. Now, now remember, these, the, the, this I am, that, that Jesus, Jesus makes a statement there again in, in, in verse uh, 47. This, this I am, this is, this, is, this is going back to what Jesus said when he spoke with, with Moses. When the Lord spoke with Moses in Exodus 3, he said, I am who I am, that is my name. And so with these repeated I am statements throughout his ministry, Jesus has shown that he is Yahweh. And so here in verses 44 and 45, he's saying, I am the Son of God. Now, he isn't literally saying here that if you believe in him, you believe in the Father instead of him. That would be like saying, if you believe in me, you don't believe in me. What Jesus is saying here is that he came as the representative of the Father, but also as so much more than a representative. Jesus is not merely another prophet. Jesus is not merely another rabbi. He is the Son of God. And that is the main message of John's Gospel account, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. John 20, verses 30 and 31. So it makes sense that Jesus would begin His final public proclamation with this message. He says, believe in the Son and you believe in the Father. Now, we've looked at this before. This is not like just like Father, like Son. Jesus isn't simply similar to the Father. As he declared in John 10.30, I and the Father are one. Jesus is again declaring that the Father and the Son are ontologically one. They have the same essence, the same divine nature. And so with this one statement, it disproves the heresy of Arianism, that, that Jesus was, was less than God, that he was created by the Father. But the statement also disproves the heresy of modalism or oneness theology, that there is no trinity, that Jesus is the Father and is the Son. Jesus says in, that he was sent he was sent by the Father in verses 44 and 45. So, so did he send himself? No. He, there is a distinction between the Father and the Son. And although they're, they're eternally co-equal, co in, in, in the mission that Jesus performed, he submitted to the Father. He fulfilled obedience to the Father on our behalf. And back even, you see this back even in the very first verse of John's Gospel account. He says in John 1.1, 1, 1, the Word was with God and the Word was God. This is the, the glory and the mystery of the Trinity. Jesus is saying that He's God. He is God the Son. And then he continues in verse 45. Whoever sees me sees Him who sent me. Now, many believed in him, but seeing isn't always believing. 
Seeing isn't always believing. Remember, these people had, many of them had just witnessed the, the resurrection of Lazarus. But they still didn't believe. And, and if a miracle of that magnitude could not make somebody believe in Jesus, there must be something else going on. It points to the fact that people's hearts are hard and that regeneration is a work of the Holy Spirit. But again, many, many of the disciples didn't even get it. Even they didn't understand. Those, those men that had walked so closely with Jesus throughout his three-year ministry, even they, to this point, didn't get it. That's why in John 14, when Jesus is alone with his disciples, and he makes a similar statement to that of 1245, saying that if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip doesn't understand. He says, show us the Father, and that is enough for us. Now, Philip was seeking a theophany, a, a visible manifestation of God. And it's, it's really not too dissimilar to what Moses was seeking in Exodus 33:18, where the Lord declared to Moses that he could not see his face and live, but that he, he protected Moses in the cleft of the rock and then covered him with his hand. And then in chapter 34, after, after passing by, he let Moses see his back. And the Lord proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, gracious, sorry, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Moses quickly bowed his head to the earth, and worshipped. And what Philip didn't realize is that these things, the attributes of God, were being manifested right in front of them. The glory of God. Now, of course, the, the glory of Jesus was, was in a sense, veiled apart from, apart from that, that moment on the, the Mount of Transfiguration where they, they saw a partial disclosure of Jesus' glory. But Philip didn't realize that in Jesus, they had seen God. Remember that John had just demonstrated in verse 40 by quoting Isaiah 6.10 that it was the glory of Jesus that Isaiah had seen in Isaiah 6. So Jesus responds to Philip, Have I been with, with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? God is one, yet in three distinct persons, equal, yet with different roles. Again, we see in verses 44 and 45 that the Father sent the Son. The Father sent the Son for a specific purpose, for a particular mission. The Father sent the Son to take on human flesh, to live in the midst of a fallen humanity in perfect obedience to the Father, and to die on the cross, bearing the wrath that his people deserved. And then to be risen from the grave on the third day. 
everything that Jesus said and everything that Jesus did demonstrated that the Father had sent him. Every expression of love for the Father bore witness. Every miracle bore witness. Every lesson bore witness. Everything that he suffered bore witness. Jesus said in John 5, 36, For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. The miracles that Jesus performed reveals that he is the Son of God. The mercy that Jesus demonstrated revealed that he is the Son of God. The ministry that Jesus accomplished revealed that he is the Son of God. The message that Jesus delivered revealed that he is the Son of God. So how will you respond to the Son of God? Those who reject Jesus are rejecting the Son and the Father and the Holy Spirit. But many walk through life in open rebellion against God. Even those who claim to not believe in God are walking in rebellion against God. We saw this as we studied Romans 1:18 to the end of the chapter on Wednesday evening. Creation testifies that there is a God. There is no such thing as an atheist. There's no such thing. They're suppressing the truth about God in unrighteousness. There are no atheists, only anti-theists. And it's amazing that somebody would reject God who is holy, loving, sovereign, wise, gracious, and just, and instead choose what is vile and hateful and weak and foolish and vengeful and unrighteous. Think about that. As though there were, there's some sort of, of cosmic scale that, that had the, the, the glories of God on one hand and the vileness of sin on the other. There, 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 the disparity is infinite between them. But people still choose their sin. People still choose their sin. And again, the only way to make sense of it is the hardness of their hearts. And there's only two options. Rejection of God or faith in Him. In verse 46, Jesus is declaring, I am the light. He says, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Now, this concept of light versus darkness is another key theme in John's gospel account. John spent several verses discussing this back in the prologue. He said in, verses, uh, in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, The light was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then John continued in verse 9, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Jesus will declare it himself in, in John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He said it again in twelve thirty six. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. And all of these things point back to Genesis. 
or rather as, as Genesis points ahead to these things, where God said, let there be light, and there was light. The light came into a world that was darkened by sin. As Leon Morris explains, darkness is the state of the natural man, but Christ came in order to deliver men from such a state. Beloved, at one time we were all in darkness, but the light of Christ has shone on us. The light of Christ shows us God's holy standard of righteousness as Jesus walks through his creation without sin in thought or word or deed. And in the face of Jesus, all of our pretenses of of self-righteousness fall away. The light of Jesus reveals darkness for what it is. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul declares, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Have you considered that? The same God, the same one who created the universe with a word. Fellow Christian, that same God flooded your dark heart with the light of Jesus as the reflection of the Father. Remember the words of of Charles Wesley's wonderful hymn, And Can It Be? Long Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My, <clears throat> my chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Has the light of Christ shone in your heart? Do you understand that you were once bound in the deep, dark dungeon of, and the, with the chains of sin? But God diffused a quickening ray, a ray that brings light and brings life. The darkness of sin had infected every single descendant of Adam, all of us. Now, the symptoms of the disease are more obvious in some, but but we were all born with it. Every thought and every action was corrupted by it. And the prognosis for this disease is eternal death. And there is only one cure, Jesus Christ, who bore the disease of sin in his perfectly healthy and holy body. And those who are trusting in him have been healed of this disease. Now, if you've been healed, the effects of this disease will continue to subside for the rest of your life as you are progressively sanctified in the power of the Holy Spirit and changed as you're predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. But some people don't live like they've been healed. If someone isn't growing stronger and more healthy, quite often it means that they haven't really been healed and that they still have this terminal disease. 
and then they will die and be condemned. If somebody goes to the doctor to be treated for cancer, and they're, they're, they're feeling horrible pains, and their body is wasting away, and they, they go through a, a series of, of, of chemotherapy, and, and of radiation treatments, but then when they, when they go through those treatments and they, they come out on the other side, if their body continues to waste away, it means that they haven't really been healed. So we all need to ask ourselves, have I truly been healed? We need to examine ourselves as, as Paul proclaims and tells us we should do. Examine yourselves. Are we truly in the faith? Because if the light of Jesus has truly shone in our hearts, we will not remain in darkness. Jesus has come so that we would not remain in darkness, but we would show by our lives that we have received the light of life. So how will you respond to the light? How will you respond? By God's grace, the elect will respond to the light of Christ with repentance and faith. Jesus declared in John 19, 3.19 to 21, that the light came into the world, but people wouldn't come to the light because their deeds were evil. They loved the sin. They loved the fact that the darkness hid their sin. But people who love righteousness will come to the light so that their good deeds will reveal that those deeds have been done in God and they will give God the glory. Isaiah laid out the choice in Isaiah 50, 10 and 11. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled, and this you will have from my hand. You will lie down in torment. These are the only two options, eternal torment and eternal blessings. Next, in verse 47, Jesus declares, I am the Savior. He says, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And here he's continuing the thought that he'd begun in verse 46, that those who believe in him will not remain in darkness. Many heard what Jesus had taught, and they even responded with, with a, a form of obedience. But it wasn't obedience from the heart, and it didn't last. And they prove that by rejecting Jesus, by walking away from him. I know many of us have, have known people who for, for a time seemed to, to walk in faith and, and they, they appeared to be Christians. But they ended up walking away. Now last week we talked about not judging the end of the story by the middle of the story. We don't know what is going to happen with those people. And if they were truly regenerate, they will return. But Jesus gave commands, and we must keep those commands by the grace that he gives. 
In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus declared that those who hear his words and do not do them are like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came. The winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Matthew 7, 26 and 27. Now, I'm no architect, but I've built a few sandcastles in my time. And I know what happens when the waves hit them. It's not pretty. James uses another powerful illustration. He says that those who are hearers but not doers of the word deceive themselves. They're like a man who looks carefully in the mirror and then walks away and forgets what he looks like. Being a hearer of the word and not a doer is that ridiculous. You can read the Bible every day and, as one writer said, not have achieved anything at all except having moved the bookmark forwards. You can memorize scripture. You can listen to, to, to faithful preaching. You can read solid books, but if you're not putting it into practice, you are wasting your time. Why do you read the Bible? Why do you, you read good books? Why do you listen to sermons? Is it not so that you can reveal, you can understand better who God is and understand who you are? We do this, this not so that we can have this, this empty head knowledge of God, but so that we can experience God. And we can respond in love that increases for God. Now, I know there, there's times that, that I, even this past week, when Jane and I were doing our devotions, and I realized by the time we get to a section that, that I've been daydreaming about house renovations or something like that. It, it's, it's a waste of time. And worse than that, it's hypocrisy. But we all do it, don't we? There's times that, that we all just jump through the hoops because we, we feel that that's what we should do. But it's not just about doing the right things. It's about doing the right things for the right reason. Now, now we, can, we can add to our list of devotions. We can, we, can, we can spend hours every day praying. But not really be praying because we're, we're just... We're just talking to ourselves because we're not willing to put into practice what God commands us in his word. So how do you change that? What do you do? You can't, we, we, we're just, we are, are, so many of us are legalists by our nature and, and we think that just, oh, I just need to do more of that. I just need to do more reading and more prayer. But what has to happen is your heart needs to change. It's as simple as that. But it's impossible. We can't change our hearts. God has to do that. God has to do that. So Jesus said to these crowds that if you are a hearer and not a doer, he won't judge them. He said, I don't judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Now, some people pull verses like this out of, out of context. There was a, a discussion just even on Facebook the other day about it that, that 
as though judging were a bad thing. But we're commanded not to judge according to appearances or to judge according to the flesh, but to judge with right judgment. Now, just because Jesus said he didn't come to judge doesn't mean that he won't judge ever, but he's saying that judging was not his primary mission. In John 8, 15 to 16, he says, You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. See, also, this doesn't mean that they won't be judged. We're going to see this in a a moment. Every unrighteous deed will be punished by God's perfect justice. But the problem occurs when people judge with the wrong standards. They have this own, their own set of things that are right and things that are wrong that, that often go beyond the Bible. It's, it's pharisaical. That's exactly what they did. They added to the Word of God and said, this is the measure of spirituality. And if you're not doing this, you're not honoring God. But it's God's Word and God's Word alone that is our standard. We must strive to keep Christ at the center, make it God's Word in precept and principle that we follow, nothing added to it. The Father has given all judgment to the Son. He has given him authority to judge, John 5, 22 and 27. But in his first incarnation, Jesus came as the Savior of the world. So what does that mean, that Jesus came as the Savior of the world? Does this mean that Jesus came to save every single person who ever lived and will ever live? We know that that can't be the case because there there are innumerous people who, who have died in their sin and rebellion against Jesus and have been condemned to hell. I can read about Scripture in Scripture who, where there are so many who are going to be condemned to eternal torment where the worm does not die and the smoke of their torment goes up for all eternity. So we know that that Jesus didn't come to save everybody, otherwise everybody would be saved. But in order to understand what Jesus is saying here, you have to consider the context of John chapter 12. Remember that just previously in, in verse 19, the Pharisees had bemoaned the fact that the whole world was going after Jesus. And then in the next verse, we see Greeks seeking after Jesus. The context of the word world is Jews and Gentiles coming to faith. All the nations of the world. The same is true in the parallel passage of John chapter 3. Everybody knows John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We studied this in depth several months ago. This is one of the best known verses in Scripture, but it is also one of the most interpreted because people failed to consider the context. Jesus was there speaking to a Jewish Pharisee who didn't understand the means or the extent of the atonement. Nicodemus thought that salvation was for the Jews, and Jesus said it was for Gentiles too. The blood of Christ was sufficient for everybody, but efficient 
for the elect. The blood of Christ is powerful enough to save everybody, but actually saves every person that God has predestined for salvation. Remember Romans 1.16. The gospel is the power of salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But again, just because Jesus didn't judge at this point, who's fulfilling his, his primary mission was to save his sheep, but he is coming back to judge. Please turn and look at, at Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. Sorry, Matthew 25. Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a, as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. He's coming to judge the world. And then down on and 46, he says, and those who, who have not served him, he will say, he will send them away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Jesus is coming back to judge. And also in Revelation chapter 19, from verses 11 to 16, we see the heavens opened and, and a white horse and the one sitting on it called Faithful and True and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is coming back to judge. But even though this final judgment has not yet taken place, those who are hearers but not doers stand condemned. John 3.18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So how will you respond to the Savior? The Father has sent the Son so that you do not have to die in your sins. Why would you choose eternal condemnation instead of eternal life with Christ? There's only two choices. Reject Him and be damned for all eternity or receive Him in repentance and faith and be saved by Him. Finally, in verses 48 to 50, Jesus says, I am the Word. I am the Word. 
He says, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. God created the universe with a word. He brought light out of darkness with a word. He brought life out of death with a word. Jesus is the word incarnate. He is the word become flesh. Again, John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. And in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the eternal Logos, the eternal word of God. And not receiving the words of the word is the same as rejecting him. If you don't receive and act on the teachings of Jesus, you are rejecting him and you stand condemned. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses prophesied that I'll raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And then in verse 19, And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. The, the, the condemnation of the law, the full condemnation of the law is called down on the heads of those who reject the word. This is what Jesus taught in John 5, 45 to 47. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The teaching of Moses pointed to Jesus. The Bible is about Jesus from, from Genesis to Revelation. It's all about Jesus. But, the, but these Jews who, who supposedly had the law of Moses were rejecting Jesus, showing them that they had rejected the law. And they were condemned under the law. The commandment of the Father equals the words of the Son. And so the, the Father sent the Son. He sent the, the Word into the world. Isaiah 55, 11, So shall my word that goes out of my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The word of God, the words of Jesus, the whole Bible is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account." On Wednesday evening, in, in our Bible study, 
I was talking about a conversation that I'd had with Andrew Fleming earlier in the week. And, and as many of you are aware, Andrew is, is in Calgary right now, uh, candidating for a position with the Calgary Police Department. And he was telling me about how on, on Tuesday he, was, he had to do a, a lie detector test, a polygraph. And he said that, that for four and a half hours he was, was, had to sit in a chair with electrodes all over him. He could not move for four and a half hours as they grilled him about everything that he'd ever done. There was no stone in his life that was left unturned. And he said even as he was preparing to go into the meeting, he knew he'd been through these before and he knew what was coming. So he was confessing things that, that, to the examiner that he didn't even, hadn't even thought of in years. Now think about that. Sitting in a, in, a, in a chair with a polygraph attached to you for four and a half hours and having everything of your past exposed. How many of us could stand under that scrutiny? Not very many, I would say. But how much more? How much more will we, we, we not be able to stand under the scrutiny of the eye of God who knows every wicked deed, every wicked word, every thought, every wicked thought that we have ever uttered is laid bare before him. How would you stand before that kind of scrutiny? I think it's safe to say that, that those who, who feel that, their, that their, their good deeds somehow outweigh their bad deeds would crumple. There is no way to stand before the exposing word of God apart from the grace of God. Apart from faith in Jesus Christ. Apart from having your sin placed on him and having his righteousness given to you. There is no other way that we could ever stand. And this is his commandment, eternal life. Jesus is commanding life. The way is set before you. Are you going to choose life or are you going to choose death? There's only two choices. Reject his words and be judged or receive his words and find life. How you respond to Jesus Christ by his grace and for his glory, may we all respond with a heart of repentance and faith. It's our only hope. Let's pray together.